0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime. Welcome aboard. When I considered what case to share with you today, I searched my mind for a case that I couldn't forget, and this was the one. I read it about a year ago, and every now and then it pops into my brain, leaving me a little more anxious and disgusted. This is one of the goriest cases I have ever read about. There's no happy ending. It's been frustrating and maddening researching this case. I read article after article and watch video after video, and I still feel incomplete, dissatisfied, and disgusted. Maybe the boat noises will be a happy distraction today. We are headed to Nigeria. The history of Nigeria can be traced to settlers trading across the Middle East and Africa as early as 1800 B.C., Ibadan, where this case takes place, is about a hundred miles from the Atlantic coast. It is said that the earliest group of settlers in Ibadan were fugitives from justice. They were expelled from nearby villages. It remains fairly lawless and even corrupt today. Recorded history begins in 1829. Many of the people living in Ibadan originated from the Yoruba people, who are one of the largest three ethnic groups in Nigeria. Today, the city has many attractions, including zoos, aquariums, nightclubs, cultural, and educational tours. Just outside the city lays farm fields and forest. It was mid-March 2014. A motorcycle taxi driver, locally called an Okada driver, took passengers where they wanted to go. This man was named Lanre Adeko, and he was driving two passengers towards the Soka Forest. It was a beautiful night. Birds were singing, and there was a balmy breeze. If you were quiet enough, you could hear the wind moving through the trees. The nearest city, Ibadan, got its name from the phrase Iba Odin, which means the edge of the meadow. It holds over six million people and is the third largest city in Nigeria. The Soka Forest isn't far from Ibadan, just a short motorcycle ride away. The drivers were heading toward a brushy, wooded area. The two passengers were giving the driver directions. They passed an old publishing company, and a little while later the driver sees some burnt-out vehicles ahead. The road to the forest is just past them and is more of a walking path than a road. The men stop here, and at some point Lanre is kidnapped. He has walked into the forest and is never seen again. His friends and co-workers back in town are wondering where he is and they have a right to be worried because he's not the first driver to disappear. In fact, there have been an unusual number of disappearances in the city over the recent years. Not just to drivers, it's people from all walks of life, ages, and genders that are missing. Reports to police have led nowhere. Nothing has been done, yet more and more people are vanishing. Later that afternoon, a friend of the driver gets a text. The text says, "'I've been kidnapped.' Lanre's everyday phone was taken, but he was able to hold on to his other work phone. He told his friends that he was being held with eight others in an underground cavern in the forest. He begs his friends to come find him because people are being killed all around him. His friends work together and they come up with a group of about 40 young men to go and help in the search. They drive out to the Soka Forest, where they see their friend's motorcycle in a nearby river. They also see piles of clothes and human hair beside the old, burnt-out vehicles. Suddenly, a shot rings out, and the men scatter and hide. They call for more friends to come and help. I think this is telling that the men don't call the police. They don't trust them. After some time goes by, the men, now numbering closer to a 100, make a second attempt at entering the area. As they creep past the dense trees and bushes, following small trails, the scene opens up into a rather large, grassy area. There was a tiny black building close to the entrance that was full of shoes of several different sizes, belonging to men, women, boys, and girls. Behind that is a large, abandoned warehouse. The men know their friend is here somewhere, and this strengthens their courage. As they draw closer to the warehouse, they find a barbed wire fence, covered with shrubs. It was nearly impossible for them to get through. Luckily, they were able to cut some of it away and make a small entrance. They also find what they call charms, which were powerful religious items used to warn believing people away. Once inside, they begin to search the warehouse. What they find there are even more clothes, but even worse and more distressing is what they described as a torture chamber and many smaller rooms that held chains holding victims. The room smelled terrible, and inside were horrors beyond your imagination. These young men find people chained to the walls. There were eighteen living males and five females who were just skin and bones. Some were chained to walls. Others were so weak, they lay there motionless, alive, but resigned to death. At this point, the riders call the police, but they didn't leave. One of the victims, a woman, took her last breath as her rescuers tried to help her. Just outside, not far from the living victims, they find the remains of twenty decomposing bodies. One of the locals who visited the site later described the scene like this. No description is too much to express the horrors here. In the isolated bush, life is hellish, brutish, loudish, and nasty. It's distasteful, barbaric, and fetish. It's better read and heard than seen. If you go there once, you could find it difficult to eat your next meal. Flies of different sizes and colors were feasting on the bodies. The bodies were in different positions, and the odor was unbearable. As the police were on their way, the men were breaking people loose from their chains to free them. The men were also calling friends and family. Huge crowds were gathering. Some were bringing food for the victims, and some were looking for missing family or friends. And, to be frank, some were there out of curiosity. A woman was found alive and brought out of the bushes. She had blood covering her body. When the police asked her how she got to the place, she muttered a few incoherent words and then fainted. Everywhere they looked, they saw death. There were skulls of humans. There were bones and other body parts found even further into the bushes. There were open graves where bodies had been dumped. There was a makeshift guillotine, and there were clots of blood all over the floor of the room. One man was arrested, who police thought may have been involved. Five men who claimed they were hired security who worked nearby were also arrested because police believed they should have heard something, or known about what was going on in the warehouse and should have called the police. They had several weapons on them, including three guns, a bow and arrows, 22 cutlasses, and seven knives. The living victims were taken to local hospitals to recuperate. Word spread quickly throughout the neighborhoods. People were showing up in mass. Police couldn't manage the crowds. People were coming from everywhere, trying to identify their missing family members or see the horror themselves. A man was found wandering around, acting deranged, but some of the locals didn't believe he was crazy, and they were right. They found a gun on him, as well as several items of identification that didn't belong to him. He had over 40 SIM cards on him, but that wasn't all. He had four human tongues. Angry locals set him on fire and burned him alive. No joke. There are photos. I will not share them on my social media, because I'm sure they will be flagged. The pictures are terrible. I don't recommend that you look at them unless you are prepared for them to come back into your mind, uninvited. Tension was building on the scene. The police were trying to control the crowd and keep them out of the buildings. The crowd was demanding that they search under the warehouse. They believed that there were more people hidden underground, as no underground caverns had been found yet police began firing shots to try to control the crowd. An innocent woman named kefayet who was seven months pregnant, was accidentally shot in the chest. This pushed the locals over the edge. They started fighting with the police, and full-on rioting began. Locals then sent the security posts that the police had set up on fire. Most of the police force ran for their lives. The crowd besieged the forest, hoping to find their family members there. They were angry and willing to believe things they normally wouldn't. They were also willing to do things they normally wouldn't. Some local herdsmen kept cattle near where the camp was, and people began slaughtering and killing the cows, just for the fun of it. They beat up the herdsmen, claiming they had to have known something about what was going on next door. They believed the smell alone would have given warning that something terrible was going on nearby. They also began vandalizing vehicles of people who were trying to come and find their family and friends. Members of the press were beaten and injured on the scene. The next day, the governor led members of the state executive council and security agencies onto the property for an on-the-spot assessment of the forest. The governor, who was surrounded by security, expressed sadness at what he called man's inhumanity to fellow man. He called for a moment of silence and led prayers for the souls who died on the property. He directed that the bush be cleared away so they could figure out what had been happening in the forest. He said, we will also ensure that the entire area is searched by security agencies. We will find the perpetrators and bring them in. He acknowledged that it was surprising that such activities went on unnoticed. You're all probably thinking what I'm thinking. What good are forensics going to do after hundreds of people contaminated the scene and the perpetrators have had plenty of time to get away? The governor then urged the people to be conscious of security, and if they saw anything strange, they should report it to the police. He asked for order and placed a police presence back on the scene. Two days after the victims were found, when police were asked what they had found in the forest, they said they had found a woman there who claimed she had been raped repeatedly, and had given birth while being kept captive. She never saw her babies—multiple babies—after giving birth to them. Another officer claims to have found a pen with a large, live crocodile inside it. It was believed that the crocodile was fed with human remains. Locals still came and went from the scene, but there was no more rioting. There seemed to be a silent agreement that police and locals would tiptoe around each other. Families were still looking for their missing loved ones, after all. That same day, police began questioning the living victims as they regained their fitness and mental ability. At first, they began to speak of the events leading to their departure from their normal life. One man, Nefushitu, sorry, I'm doing my best with the pronunciations, but I'm sure I didn't get it right. He said that he sold herbal medicine to customers in town. He spoke almost inaudibly and paused often to catch his breath. He was at work when he was kidnapped and taken into the forest. He said, I am a native of Ibadan. I lived in the city. I sold herbal medicine to people and I was doing business on the day I was kidnapped about four months ago. After going around the area where I had customers, I felt tired and decided to rest in the gate area. Suddenly, a bus stopped by my side, and two men came out and forced me into the back seat of the vehicle. That's the last thing I could remember. When I regained consciousness, I saw myself in a room, in a forest, chained to the wall. I was too tired to struggle, and as the days passed, I became frail because I was not given anything to eat. When he was asked if he had been taken into the forest to be treated for mental illness, he looked up sharply and protested. I am not a madman. I am a normal human being. I was kidnapped and changed in a room throughout my days in captivity. He went on to say that he wasn't the only person in the building, adding that he was baffled that he heard voices of people passing by outside the building regularly. He wondered who they were and why they didn't help. He knew there were people, including young and adult women, who cried almost daily, and he saw dead bodies being taken out frequently but he didn't know if they were killed or died on their own. Nafushitu said he thought perhaps they died of hunger. I'd say if you're chained up and dying of hunger, you're still being killed. There were claims made from the emaciated, starving, disheveled former prisoners that sometimes they were forced to eat feces mixed with gary. Gary is a local food that resembles flour or dough. It's usually made by crushing up cassava roots. They're prepared like mashed potatoes, then mixed with palm oil. Sometimes it's made from whatever is available, like corn, rice, yams, or plantains. Other people said that some of the prisoners became cannibals and were feeding on the dead. This may be why some of the victims remained quiet or denied remembering anything when they were in a captivity. Others may have thought it safer to just keep quiet in case their captors returned for them. Some of the victims would only give their names, but one woman named Titi Dokpesi, I tried, was willing to tell her story. She was 45 years old, but she looks like a woman in her 60s. She said, I live at a Wolo compound in Ibadan. I'm not mad, and I'm not an old woman. Two months ago, I was in front of our house when some men grabbed me and said I was under arrest. Before I could protest, I was put in a bus and driven away. We didn't go to any police station, and I still don't know how we reached the forest. I had some money with me, and they took it. I'm only forty-five, but in the few months I spent there, I aged quickly for lack of care. We were only fed once in a week. When she was asked if she was raped by the men who abducted them, and if truly there were women who gave birth in the house, Titi said she was left alone and was too afraid to notice such activity. She kept to herself in a corner of a room, chained to the wall, and she spent most of her time praying. She didn't know if anyone gave birth there, but she knew that people were dying. Another victim reported that she was leaving her home and entered a taxi, and that's the last thing she could remember until police rescued them. When she was asked whether she saw her captors killing people and selling their body parts, She said, I think such things did happen, but it didn't really register because I tried to keep my mind blank. I can remember seeing people falling down. I can remember that some were taken away, and if they never returned, it didn't really mean anything to me until Saturday. It was as if I woke up from a slumber. At this point, the victim's countenance changed, almost as if she were going into a trance, and she no longer answered or responded to any other questions." It's fascinating to me how people respond so differently to extreme stress. Some try to please their captors, some fight until the last second, and others retreat into their own minds, ignoring everything around them. The nurses in the hospital were protective of the victims. They made it clear that two days wasn't enough time for them to recover, and that the victims may need to be treated for a very long time. The nurses tried to appease the growing crowds, who demanded that the victims give them time and attention. The nurses told them that perhaps there will be more information forthcoming in the future. Three days after the first victims were found, the grounds were in the process of being searched and torn down. Police were digging up the area to search for any underground caverns, holding more prisoners, but they stopped midway. The governor was asked why the demolition had stopped. His response was that the forensics team was on its way. Odd, since he was the one to allow the digging to begin, and now the crime scene was partially destroyed. The governor also directed environmental health officers to fumigate the forest and the entire area to prevent the outbreak of any epidemic. This required everyone to clear the property, Police told the crowd of onlookers that they needed to leave so that no more evidence would be destroyed. The governor also assured them that the next day the demolition and clearing would continue. On the fourth day the governor issued a plea asking locals not to take the law into their own hands when they suspected anyone instead they should report the suspect and law enforcement agents would come and get them this was done because several mentally ill people were suspected of being part of the massacre in the soka forest two mentally ill men i'm using their terms not mine they were completely innocent they had been lynched. This was all because of the single man who pretended he was mentally ill on the first day and was set on fire. The fear and anger led normal people to believe that anyone acting differently or odd might be associated with the killings. Later that day, ten more mentally ill people were brought into the police department. A police spokesman announced that eight suspects had been arrested and that the investigation was still ongoing. Day five. Locals still believe there's an underground chamber that hasn't been discovered. According to police, no one has been found yet, but residents claim that the commercial motorcyclist was still missing. They said the last time the cyclist reached out to them was three days earlier, and they suspected that his phone battery had gone dead. They claimed that he had called, and he told them that he could feel people walking above him, but that no one could hear their calls for help. On site, on day five, things were relatively quiet. There was very little activity. A few police officers and an armored vehicle were stationed outside the entrance to the forest. Why was no one searching for these men who were trapped underground? This was the day when bad news got worse. When the news broke about the victims in the forest... Many Nigerians, including the governor, wondered how the killers were able to exist without anyone noticing or informing the police. Now news was coming out that residents near the estate knew all along that something sinister was going on, but they were repeatedly assured by police that everything was okay. Residents identified a man who had been seen as the leader of the kidnappers' compound. His name was Gabamosi, he was said to have had tribal tattoo marks on his face. A few years earlier, the residents had said they had noticed a small group of people would bring other people in chains to the river to bathe. They were concerned enough about it that the resident association took the matter up. Some of them went into the compound and met with Gabamosi. He told them that the Royal State Commissioner for Environment had given him the approval to treat mentally ill people on the site. He showed them a paper document to prove it. In the words of the resident representative, Gabamosi showed them around the place, and what they saw was very unpleasant. The first room he took them to was full of people that looked like they were mentally ill. The second area they toured was a hall with over a hundred people kept inside it. They said the place smelled like feces and urine, and if someone stayed there for an hour, they would become mentally ill themselves. When the tattooed man spoke to the people in the room, he said, "'Won't you greet the visitors?' And the so-called patients replied, "'Good morning, sirs.' The representatives toured a third room that had even more people, but these looked a little bit more normal than the others. They were told that these people had been recently brought to the facility. The tattooed man went on to explain that he was working for the state government to rid the streets of mentally ill people by picking them up off the streets and caring for them in the facility. The residents were also told that if they wanted to support the mentally ill, they could bring food and clothes to him whenever they wanted. The representative said that everything had seemed on the up-and-up at the time. He reported that he didn't see any dead bodies at that time. Years later, the residents were shocked to hear the state government denying that they were aware of the activities going on inside. The residents even mentioned that in 2012, four people in chains escaped from the compound and passed through the community. The escapees looked like madmen, so the locals were concerned for their children. When they went to report the incident to the nearest police station, they were told that a different police station was in charge of the place. When they went there, it was confirmed that Gabamosi, the tribal tattoo guy, was in charge and he would handle the situation. Six days after the first victims had been found, more information came out about what police had found on site. In various parts of the forest, even more human remains lie rotting. They had been thrown carelessly on the ground or in holes. The crocodile that had been reported had been killed. As police teams had scoured the forest, more discoveries were made. There was a blood-soaked scrotum and intestines laying in a pile with flies swarming over them. Next to that were a pair of pants soaked in blood. The amount of clothing and personal items scattered everywhere indicated that those who were captured and killed were numbered in the hundreds. It was believed that the killings occurred in that place for many years, unchecked. A former resident of the area said that three years earlier, people started hearing noises in the forest, especially at night. They would hear people calling for help and screaming. They said the brush was so thick, no one could see what was going on inside, and any concerns they had, they took to the police. The police repeatedly told them there was nothing to fear, so they stopped reporting their concerns. Another resident came forward, saying that there was a man who would drive a black jeep into the forest every night. He would come around 8 p.m. and walk along the river bank and into the forest. He had been seen many times coming and going, and when he was questioned, he would tell people he was going for a spiritual bath in the river. He would return to his parked car at around 9.30 p.m. The residents now believed that this was when most of the killings took place. They believed the killers would take the weakest victims, or maybe the ones who had died that day. They would then kill them and cut off various body parts to sell on the black market. The black market for body parts in Nigeria is booming. This happens all over the country, even today. Incidents of what are called ritual killings happen at an alarming rate. There seems to be little or no effort by government agencies to stop or even slow the trend. Many people from all over the world believe that cruel and barbaric acts like these no longer exist in society, but they do. Ironically, as the communities in Nigeria are becoming more religious, the ritual killings are increasing as the quest for power pervades society. As a country that's trying to keep up with other, more developed countries, many people in Nigeria are still stuck in a belief that human blood and body parts are the shortest route to wealth and safety, and protection. Killers search for human parts at the request of herbalists who require them to make sacrifices or make magical potions to give power and wealth. Some people engage in ritual killings to obtain charms that they believe will make them invincible or protect them or their business from failure, illness, accidents, or spiritual attacks. It's impossible to prove a link between such sacrifices and financial success or any other type of success, but that doesn't seem to matter. We're still on day five when a loving family shares their story. A woman named Cecilia O'Bacon, who was 66, left her home in 2008 for a routine trip to the market. That was the last time her family saw her, six years earlier. Efforts that her family made to get the police involved failed, and so did media announcements. Two days after the news broke that some kidnapped people had been rescued in the forest, the O'Bacon family hurried to the scene with hopes of finding their matriarch among the rescued people. They had stumbled across the news of the forest on Monday. As they read an article, a photograph that accompanied the story was a picture of their mother that had been taken by a photojournalist they recognized her immediately. They were thrilled that they'd be reunited with her after six long years. To their shock, when they got to the site, there was no trace of her. When they went to the hospitals, there was no trace of her. When they went to different police stations, there was no trace of her. Police began searching for her, combing the streets of Ibadan. Her family knew that on the day of discovery, members of the public were at the crime scene before the police. Some of the victims were freed right away and weren't taken to hospitals. Reports were that an old woman was one of them. She just wandered away. The journalist happened to see her and took a moment to try to interview her, but she spoke a language he couldn't understand. He took her picture anyway, and then he let her walk away. By day six, some of the survivors were talking a little bit more about what happened to them. Nephew Shitu— Was willing to share his story. He said, I was kidnapped seven months ago in Ibadan. Some men forced me into a vehicle. When I came to, I was chained to a wall in a room where I was held all alone. When asked what he was fed, he said he was rarely fed. There were two men who brought food every four days. He said the food was meant for sacrifice it was rice and palm oil. He couldn't eat the food, so he only drank the water. He described the men guarding him as being hefty and always smoking. He knew there were two of them, and didn't ever remember seeing a woman among them. On the day he was rescued, he remembered a lot of noise coming from outside. Then some young boys broke in, freed him and the others who had been held captive. He asked if there were other people, and he replied, Yes, I was not the only one in the place. Every day they brought in new people and beat them. I heard cries from other rooms daily. He couldn't say for certain if they were killed, but he often saw dead bodies being taken out. He was kept alone in a small room without a roof. When it rained, he got soaked. The woman, Titi, that I spoke of earlier, told more about what happened to her. She said she was kept in a room with other women. She didn't know what happened to them, but she witnessed men coming into the room and beating them. Later they would bring food, but the food wasn't good. When she asked what they were fed, she said she couldn't remember. She just remembered that she didn't like what they were being fed. The food was terrible, and so she rarely ate it. It would have to be pretty bad for a starving person to turn it down. Titi said one of the guards, in an act of mercy, would occasionally bring her soft drinks and bread. Another victim... A man named Atdawail had boarded a yellow commercial bus. At first, it seemed like an ordinary ride, but soon turned into a nightmare. The conductor brought out a knife and ordered all the passengers to surrender their valuables. It got worse as the driver headed towards the Soka forest. He continued at top speed while a man with a knife dared anyone to so much as take a sound or move when they reached the forest. The captors had everyone on the bus take off their clothes, and their heads were shaved within minutes. Soon after, a rough-looking guy with bushy hair came in and took one of the passengers. He took the oldest man among them into a house. When they brought him right back out, they killed him in front of everyone. One of the two women on the bus screamed in shock. The executioner then said, I brought him here so you can all see the fate that awaits you. On day seven, the ritual killings have become political. A group of people have stated that the elite and religious leaders of society are responsible for the spate of ritual killings in the country, and they believe that the killings in the compound were all part of these ritual killings. It has become normal for hundreds of Nigerians to lose their lives to killers, called headhunters. It's also been noted that the number of ritualist killings goes up around the time of elections. This is repeated over and over. Some of these killings may be from people who are rooting for their new potential leader, or from the actual leaders themselves, who are hoping they might become the new powerhouse in Nigeria. It's believed that many of the ritualistic killings that were happening inside the compound were not only sanctioned by police and higher-ups in the government, but were also encouraged. Day 9. Finally some good news. Sort of. 72-year-old Cecilia Obekena, who was held captive at the compound and who was reported lost, has been found. She was found wandering around Tolgate area where a mechanic who had read about her story found her. She couldn't speak clearly; she spoke gibberish, but when given food and drink, she ate heartily. She wouldn't drink from the bottle of water she was given; instead, she poured it into a bowl and drank from that instead. This act drew cheers from the gathering crowd, because they felt that it was a sign of her sanity. A call was put through to her relatives, who considered sending her to the state hospital, where the other victims were being rehabilitated. At the hospital, fear was growing among the management. The fear was connected with the security in the hospital. The staff were worried about their own lives and the safety of the kidnapped victims who were receiving medical treatment. They believed there were far too many people coming into the hospital, asking about the welfare and identity of the victims being cared for. Medical personnel expressed a fear that rescued victims may be re-abducted, because they had observed that strange and suspicious faces had begun to visit the ward where the victims were being kept. Some of them reported overhearing a conversation between some boys, planning how to launch an attack on the staff in order to kidnap the victims again. A doctor who preferred anonymity said the security of the hospital and the safety of the victims may be compromised if a tighter security arrangement wasn't put in place. And guess what? Incredibly, this story ends there. If you want more information on this case, you won't find it. I searched high and low and found nothing. There's no information as to whether they actually found and convicted the people who murdered all these innocent victims. Instead, there are articles about the fact that they built a school over the grounds. There are no tributes to the victims. There are no follow-up articles on the survivors. It seems as though absolutely nothing was done. Is this because this is how things are done in this part of Nigeria? Or is it because wealthy, high-powered people put a stop to the investigation and to the journalistic reports? Why didn't this make worldwide news? Was the captive motorcyclist ever found? I don't know. I want to know. I want the proper people punished, both the murderers and the people who paid them. It's infuriating. The fact that so many people in Nigeria believe in the powers bestowed upon them by ritualistic killings means that these types of murders won't stop. These aren't dumb people who believe in these powers. Many are wealthy, well-educated people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, some who hold very high positions in government. Unless these herbalists or witch doctors or whatever name you want to give them start placing importance on something else, something besides human sacrifice, maybe it could be something like kindness or acts of charity. These murders will continue, and that is truly horrifying. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope this episode didn't break your spirit. I promise next week's episode will be much more upbeat and less gory. It will be a Twisted Travel episode where no one gets killed, but maybe somebody comes close to being killed. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a sponsor. There are links in the episode description that will allow you to do so. You can become a monthly sponsor or you can give a one-time donation. Please give the podcast a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend. If you'd like to see my resources, they are also in the show description. Once again, thank you so much for listening. I'd like to wish you all fair winds and following seas.